Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. I see potty problems at every age, from birth to when patients graduate from seeing the pediatrician like around, I don't know, age 20. There are, of course, lots of different issues like bedwetting, difficulty potty training, refusing to poop on the potty entirely, and frequent urinary tract infections. Recently, I've seen at least 10 kids whose parents have brought them to the clinic to be evaluated because the kid goes to the bathroom super often. And it doesn't seem like they have any other problems, just frequent pee-pee. And it's in every age. That's what got me thinking about this topic. It seems like ever since kids went back to school this year, I've seen more potty problems than ever. I've followed the work of this one particular pediatric urologist for several years. A urologist is a surgeon who specializes in the urinary tract. Because of this outbreak of potty problems, I contacted Dr. Steve Hodges and asked him to explain what's going on. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm the pediatrician next door. I'm that doctor friend you call for practical advice about your kid's health. I mix the science of medicine with the reality of parenting. It might seem like a five-year-old boy with bedwetting and a 16-year-old girl with stomach aches after eating are completely different problems. But human anatomy and physiology aren't that different between people, and the cause of almost all potty problems is also the same. I'll tell you what I've seen, and you may not believe me, so listen to this episode before you judge this statement. Most PP problems are caused by poop problems. And most long-term abdominal pain, if you can't find an immediate cause, it's from poop problems too. It's not necessarily constipation that's the problem. Once you hear what's really going on, this is going to make sense to you, so keep listening. I need an expert to help explain this, and who better to ask than a doctor who gets referrals for the most difficult cases? Dr. Steve Hodges is a pediatric urologist and professor at Wake Forest University School of Medicine in my beloved North Carolina. He's an expert in bedwetting, poop accidents, and potty problems of all sorts. He offers support and treatment options at bedwettingandaccidents.com. His research and methods are the most unique and the most effective I've encountered, and it all starts with understanding how humans use the potty. I swear, this information applies to every one of us because we all potty trained at some point, right? All right, here's where we start. Learning to use the potty is a very complex skill. It's probably more complicated than walking, honestly. This is really well illustrated by all the little babies I watch who they push and push and nothing comes out and then they relax. Maybe they even fall asleep and their poop just comes out. You've seen it. The poor little thing's face, they turn purple and they grunt. It happens because you have to learn how to pee and poop. 
babies tighten their anal sphincter at the same time they're pushing. It takes a long time to learn how to control your body and relax that area at the same time you're pushing. Most of these body functions start as reflexes. They get us along until our nervous system develops enough for us to take conscious control of this process. Dr. Hodges helps me explain here. If an infant is voiding, you know, like if a baby, they're just peeing and they have no idea they're peeing, that's a sacral reflex. And that's how babies pee because they can't, they don't have any cognition in terms of regards to I want to pee now or not. So there is a sacral reflex where the filling from the bladder sends a signal to the spinal cord and then it just shoots right back and empties. And they, they don't probably even aware they're peeing at that time. And that is, and you could probably list off a bunch of fetal reflexes that disappear over time, but I think that's one of them. And that's that fetal reflex. And then when, and the bladder starts off very small and through this gradual stretching and emptying, it grows. So there's a capacity change too. And, and that's tough to define age-wise when the capacity of the bladder is big enough to stay through the night. So that's where you get to kind of four and five years of age. But when you potty train, you go to this adult pattern where the signal goes up to the brain and tells the brain you have to pee and then it goes back down. But it's not a flip of the switch. It's not like the infant pattern disappears immediately and the adult pattern takes over. There's just like this overlap. Dr. Hodges explained what's called the sacral reflex. Just like all the other adorable reflexes that infants have, I talked about them in episode five. Like when babies throw out their hands if they're startled. In this reflex, the bladder has a reflex to empty when it's stretched out. The neurologic control of the bladder is really complex, but we understand it very well. Eventually, the brain takes over conscious control and overrides the infant bladder reflex, and we can control when and where we pee. We potty train kids once their brain is able to take over. But as Dr. Hodges said, this process is gradual and it's affected by other factors. The reflex often does take over even when adults are using the potty. At the very end, some of the process of peeing is actually a reflex. You might notice this. For all of us, parents with kids and just regular adults, it's helpful to understand what happens when we potty train kids. First, there are two things that kids need in order to potty train. They have to have neurological control. I talked about that just now. And they need physical skills. And Dr. Hodges explains this. They have to be independent in terms of they have to be able to get to the potty, you know, walk there. They have to be able to take their pants down and, and sit on the potty. So just those physical coordination milestones. And they have to have an awareness of when they have to go and the desire to empty. And so I think you can pick those up as you see. A lot of parents will use the, well, they don't like being in diapers as a sign. And I guess it's a kind of a soft sign, but you have to make sure that they know how to do all the steps that are required to, you know, actually get to the bathroom empty and then and get dressed, even if with parents helping them. Because, you know, you could train anyone to kind of hold pee and poop in. What you can't train them is to have the maturity to know that you have to go when you get the urge. You know, and that's where young kids kind of mess that up. Potty training is, is kind of like a physiological process like sleeping or walking. You know, it's like a milestone that you don't make a kid walk. You can put them in the environment to help them walk or environment to help them sleep. But it happens at their own time. So that's kind of the philosophy we've had. But, you know, there's so many caveats, right? Do you do it too soon? And then you could do it too late. We had some people that were really running with the lateness. So I've settled on at three and a half. That's my good year because I think if before three is tough, early threes are still getting a hang of it. Between three and a half and four, most kids are developmentally normal can do it. And if they get to four and they can't, usually there's, a, there's an issue. The most important thing here to understand is that there isn't an age for potty training. Never, ever 
push your child to potty train. This isn't something they can learn by you teaching. There are complex developmental processes that have to take place in the baby's body first, and you can't see those processes. So parents don't really think about it that way. In my experience, if you potty train too early, a child will have consequences. And many kids will potty train on their own if you give them the opportunity and the support. Like Dr. Hodges said, you can train anyone to hold their pee and poop. That part is not that difficult. And if you potty train too early, a kid is not going to have the ability to release their pee and poop on command, but they're going to hold. And that's the primary cause of most kids' bedwetting, constipation, tummy problems, and all the issues you see. We even see these issues in older kids. Often, they hold at school because they don't want to use the bathroom. Dr. Hodges has a library of online resources, courses, books that cover this and how to manage it if this becomes a problem. Here, he explains the connection between stool holding, constipation, and bedwetting in some detail. The infant reflex persists longer if you have this constipation or rectal dilation that we talk about in the books. And then it'll fire that off. And that's why they don't wake up. It's that it's shooting off as a sacral reflex. It's never even going to the brain. So if you can potty train them and they're developmentally at that age, and that I couldn't even tell you the exact age, but again, four to five is probably right, then they should feel it. And if they're not, it's probably because they have a poop issue. And so that I think covers why these kids aren't waking up. And then the other problem is, when will they outgrow it? Could it be a year? Could it be 10 years? And that's where I get into one of my pet peeves with kind of watching bedwetting because it may get better quickly, it may not. And a lot of these kids may suffer for, for decades. I have a kind of a out there, but I think accurate <laughs> take on bedwetting. And that is that I don't think it's ever really normal. If you look at like even some studies uh, in neurology literature where infants are voiding, they're coming out of sleep. They're like arousing, they're wetting, and they're going back to sleep. And so there's this gray area of when the baby's just too young to get out of the crib and pee on their own, right? So I'm not saying a six-month-old could pee in the potty or, you know, or no, they had to pee, but there's this point at which maybe they're trapped in a crib, and even if they wanted to pee in the potty at night, they're not going to, and it's too hard for them to do it. And so once they're potty trained, and they can get to the bathroom on their own, and they're not afraid to go to the bathroom, and there's no barriers like that, then they should be dry at night. And so even four years of age, in my opinion, should be dry. Now, the traditional teaching is five years of age, about 25% of kids wet the bed, and then 15% get better a year. So most people won't treat it until about five. But I do think if you see, we'll probably get into this, if you see signs of constipation or if a child's wetting the bed, if you address that, then they're much more likely for it to go away sooner rather than later. Dr. Hodges suggests, and I think he's right, that if kids are wetting the bed after age five, most of them, it's because they have stool pressing on their bladder. Many of these kids do poop every day, but they may not be taking the time to completely empty and they have pressure on their bladder and that pressure causes bladder spasms and those set off that infant reflex. Some kids will just make frequent trips to the potty. Some will have bedwetting and some will not have any bladder symptoms at all, but they might complain of tummy aches. This is where people are different. Our bladders have different thresholds for how it responds to pressure. And apparently, this is even true in animals. There's actually animal studies and human studies where they put a balloon in the rectum and dilate it, and they see variable responses in the bladder. It's not like you can just check x-rays in kids that are bedwetting and they'll be constipated, and then their friends aren't. 
I think the the propensity to withhold pooping is so uniform, you probably see it all the time, that maybe all of them are backed up. But the, only the subset gets the bladder overactivity. A subset gets bladder underactivity. So they're the ones that their parents say, well, they, they have a camel bladder, they can hold it all day, and they're proud of them. And they probably never see a doctor. And then once you're constipated, how does the bladder react? And again, I don't, I don't know what genetic polymorphism affects that, but I just know that if you dilate the rectum, the bladder responds differently in different people. And if it leads to overactivity, you're going to be a bedwetter. And then within the group of people where the bladder reacts to rectal dilation, there's a variation in how much rectal dilation leads to bladder overactivity. Some kids, tiny amounts of stretch, stretching leads to bladder going haywire. Other kids have to hold their poop for a week before they start seeing bedwetting. And that manifests itself in how easy they are to cure. Some kids get better with a little bit of Miralax. Some kids need enemas for, for months, unfortunately. I heard, um, you know, the average time for a mammal to defecate is 12 seconds. I said that to one kid. I said, let's take you 12 seconds to poop. And he like jumped on it. He goes, okay, I'm going to make sure. And it made him go to the bathroom right away when he felt it. And it would come right out. And so I do think the time it takes you to poop is signed as well. He's right. The time it takes someone to poop is a significant sign as to whether a child or adult has dysfunctional bowel or bladder habits. The solution to potty problems is unfortunately not as simple as just telling someone it should take 12 seconds. It doesn't even matter what the problem is. Leaking poop, which is called encoparesis, daytime accidents, nighttime accidents, or just running to the potty, which we call urgency, all of these issues can be solved by going through these steps, starting with evaluating for any daytime problems. But if they come in with bedwetting, I really hone in on, do they have any daytime symptoms? Do they have anything else? Because sometimes they'll come in for the bedwetting and I'm like, well, do they pee on themselves while awake? No, but they have to go real frequently, real urgently. I'm like, okay. And sometimes they have poop skid marks. So you have to back up and the poop accents, whether they're skid marks or, or encapresis, have to get treated first. And then the day wetting has to be completely resolved, all the day symptoms resolved before we even have a hope of being dry at night, typically. So if they come in for bedwetting, but I find out they have daytime urgency, I like, okay, let's slow down. Let's fix the urgency first and like take this in stepwise. Or if they have poop issues where they're having poop accidents, maybe the parents explain them away because they don't think that they're as severe or not affecting camps and so forth. I say, you have to get that better first and then move on. I have a really good series of Botox and it's, People, most people, it's interesting, consider bedwetting its own condition, like it's it's like its own entity, not related to bladder overactivity, but it, at its most basic level, it's a overactive bladder. And we've proven that, I think, by using Botox to cure it, and we've had pretty good results. Bedwetting is caused by bladder overreactivity. And we've talked a lot about pressure on the bladder and the infant reflex, but treatment also includes several medications that can be really helpful that help to relax the bladder. There are a number of these kinds of medications, including ones that make the child make less urine at night. There's a pill you can take, and it's the same as the natural hormone that adults make that makes it so we don't make as much urine at night. And with less urine being made, kids don't stretch out their bladder as much. The other option we talked about was bed alarms. There are lots of products out there that alarm and wake a child up when they're starting to wet. In pediatrics, we don't tend to recommend them, because they don't usually seem to work all that well. So I was curious what a urologist thinks of these alarms. My issue with alarms is, um, I say it's got more like 
quitters than like New Year's resolutions. It's insane. People will start them, but it's just so difficult to get up at night. So people quit, but they won't be able to wake up the child. But it, it just enables the child to wake up. So it shifts the signal to the brain. So it's recruiting the brain in that sacral reflex. So when it goes off, it's getting the brain involved. So it can allow them to wake up to pee, but they're not sleeping through the night. And there's a lot of relapse. I've seen a lot of relapses in the patients I see because they got dry on it, but then because the problem wasn't fixed, kind of wore off. But there's no harm in it, and it's easy. And if you need a quick fix, you know, there's always those outliers that did the alarm for a week and got dry. And, you know, God bless them. If that works, then that's great. Bed alarms can help a child to signal their conscious control when their bladder reflex is taking over. So alarms can be helpful for some kids. And this brings up another really important issue. And some of you might know what I mean when I talk about this. Getting up to pee at night disrupts sleep. Am I right, moms and grandpas? When I talk to families with a child who is bedwetting, they almost all tell me that the child is a sound sleeper. And I'm sure that to some extent this is true. Kids who sleep deeply don't wake up to go to the bathroom. But Dr. Hodges talks about an interesting theory that has made me rethink this logic. Recent area research is that I think it's a big deal is that people think sleep causes bedwetting, right? Because they can't arouse. But in reality, it's the flip. It's the bedwetting is happening and the so the brain can't rest because of the bladder overactivity. So it never reaches deep sleep. So they're harder to arouse, but they're not um, actually getting restful sleep. So I compare it to sleep apnea. So imagine if you have a kid with sleep apnea, you would treat them, right? Because you know better than anyone the one of the major factors in brain development is, is good restful sleep. So I, I'm, so I have a kind of campaign that we're starting to push for bedwetting treatment to promote good sleep. Think of all these kids that are wetting the bed all these years. And we used to always think, well, maybe ADHD is associated with, with incontinence or dysfunctional elimination. Maybe it's the other way around. Maybe these kids aren't getting good sleep. They're basically not sleeping adequately for years, and that's affecting their brain. Bedwetting may cause sleep disturbance in a way that these kids never go into the stage of restorative sleep, and potentially this can lead to daytime behavior problems. So bedwetting is something you don't want to ignore. Another issue I see that causes a lot of life disruption in families is poop withholding. This typically starts early. I just saw a kid this week. He's 11 years old now. He was in the emergency room over the weekend for abdominal pain. He's been having poop accidents for a year and a half. But he told me he remembers It hurt to poop when he was little, and so he holds it. And now he's in middle school, and he's embarrassed to poop at school, so he's still holding. And he doesn't feel the urge to go to the bathroom anymore. His bowels are so stretched out. He did what we call a bowel clean-out over the past few days, but he's going to continue to have dysfunctional habits if he doesn't get long-term treatment. It's summer break now, so it's a great time to buckle down and get into a good regimen, I uh, cover recommendations about how to do this in the bonus episode, so check that out. His treatment's going to be relatively straightforward, but for some kids, poop withholding causes so much stress in the family, and you don't want to end up with an 11-year-old with poop accidents at school, so you need to intervene early. And Dr. Hodges has effective treatments for this as well. Here he explains. Poop withholding, if you have a child that will not poop on the toilet, they they. They'll poop, but they'll ask for a pull-up or they'll go in a corner and they won't poop on the toilet. They have two great treatments for that. The one is the um, Duhamel approach from the ins and outs of poop. And that was the one where um, kids potty train, but they won't poop on the potty, but they will poop in pull-ups. And what he would do is put them on Miralax, keep them pooping, soft poop. 
and then slowly transition them toward the toilet. So, okay, I'll give you your pull-up and you poop in it. Now I'll give you your pull-up and you poop in the bathroom in the pull-up. Now you poop on the toilet in the pull-up. And some kids are so attached to this behavior, which is, it'll blow your mind, that you literally have to cut a hole in the pull-up so they can poop on the potty. And he has a story in his book, which I think is very telling, where this one girl, she would only poop with the pull-up on, but the pull-up had long since stopped being a pull-up. It was just like a belt, you know what I'm saying? Because it had no bottom to it. So she was basically pooping on the toilet, but she had such a mental kind of block on that. She had to wrap that thing around her waist before she would sit. So it shows how, how deeply ingrained these kids get. And the second is this DOM approach. And this is kind of the sink or swim method. Dr. DOM passed away. He was a GI a pediatrician in New York. He knew that kids, if there's a subtle urge, whether it's a natural urge or even with Miralax, they can fight it. So he would give them an overwhelming urge that they couldn't fight. And so he would give, and I use this a lot in my clinic for withholders. He would keep them confined to the bathroom, which sounds crazy, but he would do that. I'm a little more lenient. He would take their bottoms off, so they had no clothes on, and he would give them six x lax. And five to eight hours later, these kids get an overwhelming urge that their brain knows immediately they're not stopping it, and they all sit on the potty and poop. And I've had great success with this with all withholders, developmentally disabled children that can't even teach to poop on the potty, even they get it. And that, and I think it's, it was a brilliant insight on his part that you just need to raise the urge because the urge is easily withholdable. And when the urge gets high enough, these kids will go. You do, of course, want to do any of these techniques with the guidance of a physician. There are doctors and clinics across the country that specialize in treating potty issues. Dr. Hodges has many different protocols that are tailored to an individual issue. Many of them include enemas, which we really didn't talk about here, but they can be very effective for any issues. Maybe the most challenging part of all of this is recognizing there's a problem at all. Don't be afraid to bring potty issues up with your pediatrician. Like I said before, these are really physiologically complex functions and they affect kids' health in a number of ways, including their sleep, their behavior, their self-esteem, and Dr. Hodges agrees with me. Oh, yeah, I would say a child has accidents. Don't ignore it because it's not a phase or something. It's most likely treatable. If they have difficulty potty training, I see these news reports all the time that kids are showing up in school at eight years of age, not potty training. If, if they want to poop and pull-ups, it's one thing, but most likely they have a medical condition that's not allowing them to potty train. If I had it my way that when kids are potty training, if they show any signs of, of pooping difficulty early on, like you know how it is that they, like I had a daughter that when she started dairy, she got constipated. Another one, when she started rice cereal. So when you see these hard poops, these straining, these behaviors like hiding the poop, that you start the treatment immediately. And then it, that would make potty training easier. And if they potty train, they have accents, you know, don't ignore them. Don't write them off to, uh, she's a you know, little kid, doesn't care. Uh, start treating the bowel issue. So my middle daughter was wetting the bed for a short time. So I don't want to complain about it. It was easy to treat, but I just started Miralax because she, and she honestly never complained about pooping. The other two did, and she never did. But put her on Miralax, and once she was empty, she stopped wetting the bed immediately. And I know it's not that easy for everyone, but if you if you jump on these issues early, I think you won't have as many um, long-term wetters like we have and, and then these severe impaction that end up seeing me for help. It's interesting. I think it's the most common medical condition in children. I think it's a result of just people being too smart for their own good. No other lower mammal would think to hold their poop all day people do, and it leads to a lot of medical conditions. And if we just make an awareness about it and treat it aggressively, we could prevent loads of problems. Loads of problems. I couldn't have said that better myself. That's a great way to wrap this episode. 
I know we covered toileting problems and why they happen. And you may be wondering now how to simply have healthy bowels. I cover the three simple steps anyone can follow to have a healthy potty experience in a special bonus episode. So look for that in your feed. Thank you to Dr. Hodges for the work he's done to help parents and doctors understand potty problems. Find him at bedwettingandaccidents.com. Be sure to share this episode with anyone you know who may be dealing with some of these issues with their kids. As much as we all enjoy poop jokes, nobody really wants to talk about this. And as you've heard, it's an important issue. We didn't talk about this much in the episode, but I see almost as many problems with incomplete bowel emptying in teenagers. You notice I don't like to call it constipation. So it might be worth bringing up with your older kids too. And you can always talk with your pediatrician. If you have a question or issue that you wish you had brought up with your child's doctor and you think it might help others, find me on Instagram at the pediatrician next door or visit me on the web. For more from The Pediatrician Next Door, find me on the web at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com. If you've got a question about the weird things kids do, send an email to hello at pediatriciannextdoorpodcast.com for a chance to hear your voice on the show. I'm Dr. Wendy Hunter, and I'm The Pediatrician Next Door. This show is produced by Red Rock Music. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever it is you're listening. I'll be back next time with more.